All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are glad. Thank you, Derek. We're glad you're here. If you weren't here last week, uh, I broke my foot last Saturday night. It is doing much better. I had like 50 of you say you looked like you were in so much pain as you sat on that stool teaching last week. I am in no pain at all, so do not be distracted. Uh, I just can't stand. So weird thing. Uh, wow. Thank you, Andersons, for doing that. It is really beautiful, actually, to hear about it. We're going to talk a good amount about some of that today. But Rex, as I sit here listening to you, I so want you as a football coach just to follow me around in life and tell me what to do. I think that would be so cool, a daily football coach. All right. Well, I don't know that I would say I'm a history buff, but um, I am fascinated by the weird, like, trivial things in history that really don't make it to the mainstream, things you're never going to hear about in a history class uh, or see on the History Channel, but are interesting nonetheless. And, and uh, one of those things that's always caught my attention is the history behind how wars get started, um, how countries and, and kingdoms start fighting each other. Of course, uh, there's the ones we all know, right? Uh, Pearl Harbor got the United States involved in, in World War II. Uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand led to the outbreak of World War I. But, but there are some I'm pretty sure you don't know a thing about. For example, did you know that there was a war called the Pastry War in 1838? Uh, a French chef who had opened up a bakery in Mexico City uh, one day, he had his shop destroyed by a mob of people who were out destroying the city, and he, he, they were just out looking to do damage. And he went to the Mexican government, and he asked them, the government, to pay for repairs and all of his lost product. And, of course, the Mexican government ignored that request. And so being a French citizen, he reached out to the French government for help. France did nothing, didn't even acknowledge his complaint until 10 years later, King Louis-Philippe, who was already upset that Mexico owed France millions of dollars in loans, 10 years later, this small bakery thing came to his attention. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and he demanded that Mexico pay the pastry chef. And of course, they did not, and the king started a war over this. He sent a fleet of ships to Mexico. They battled the Mexican military for six straight months. Uh, finally, the British government stepped in to negotiate a peace treaty, and as part of it, the Mexicans were forced to pay damages to the pastry chef, and now you know about the pastry war. All right, here's another one, the War of Jenkins' Ear. Is anybody here, nobody at our outdoor service had heard of the War of Jenkins' Ear. Is there anybody here who knows anything about the War of Jenkins' Ear? Okay, no one here either. All right, now you're going to know. In 1731... Uh, a British trader named Robert Jenkins was stopped by the Spanish. He was accused of smuggling. And so they seized all of his cargo, and for good measure, they cut off his ear. Seven years later, seven years later, Robert Jenkins stood before British Parliament, and he showed them his severed, decomposing ear, which he had somehow hung on to for seven years. Um, I picture him keeping it in a jar. I don't know what that looked like. But they see his ear, Parliament, and they hear the story, and the British declare a war on Spain, a war that does not take place in England or in Spain, which are kind of close to each other, but a war that takes place off the coast of Florida here, because what the war is really about is who's going to control the Caribbean. The thing with both of these, the pastry war, uh, the war over the ear, there is always a thing that starts it, but it's never just the thing. Something has been going on under the surface for a long time. Something's been bubbling up. Wars and battles don't start because of one thing. There's always been that other thing stirring. And, and I bring it up today because I wonder 
if that isn't true for the times that we live in. Last year, we were all stuck in our houses about three months into the pandemic, and the Washington Post ran an article that talked about something bubbling up in America. Specifically, it talked about an anger. Our country erupted in the worst civil unrest in decades after the death of George Floyd. There was anger about police violence. There was anger about the country's legacy of, of racism. At the same time, there was anger that was provoked by the coronavirus pandemic, anger at public officials for shutting down part of society, uh, or the opposite, anger because officials weren't doing more to curb the virus, anger about being required to wear a mask, or anger towards people who refuse to wear a mask, anger at anybody who doesn't see things the right way, whatever that is. And a psychology professor at UC Irvine was quoted in this article saying this, take a look. We are living, in effect, in a big anger incubator. Does, does that ring true to you, that we're in an anger incubator right now? Or, or we've been in one for a while? NBC News and Esquire magazine, they teamed up to survey people about how they're feeling. And here's what they found. Half of all Americans say they are angrier today than they were a year ago. Half of our our country is angrier right now than they were a year ago. Now, what was behind that statistic when they, when they looked further? Lots of people have this feeling that the American dream is dead and America's role in the world is not what it used to be and their life is not working out for them. It's not quite what they had in mind. A lot of people are living through a lot of disappointment. In fact, let me try something with you, okay? We'll just try this together. The first question they asked on this survey was about how often do you hear or read something in the news that makes you angry? All right, I won't have you stand up like Andrea did and go find someone. But just turn to the person next to you if you came with somebody and tell them how you would answer that. How often do you hear or read something in the news that makes you angry? Take a second and do that, would you? Okay, let me show you something interesting, all right? 20% of the people surveyed said once a week. 37% said once a day. 31% said a few times a day. So in total, about 88% of Americans are angry at least once a week. 68% of us every single day. And what that's done, what that's done is it's, it's made it hard for companies and politicians and pastors to communicate to people who walk in the door angry and with a preconceived idea of what new way someone is going to disappoint them. In, in 2017, Budweiser decided to premiere this Super Bowl commercial that's running behind me. Uh, this commercial was about their company's founder, Adolphus Busch, who was an immigrant from Germany. And uh, this is an epic commercial. It's incredibly well done. Um, it shows him leaving Germany, sailing for the new world in 1857. It shows him living through discrimination he lived through when he got here, surviving a fire, uh, finally meeting a partner to brew beer with, and then settling in St. Louis. And um, the rest is history. They start a company. Budweiser eventually becomes the king of beers. Well, this commercial aired in what was a pretty tumultuous week for the Trump administration, who had just at that time issued a travel ban on seven Muslim-majority countries. And, and some people saw this ad play during the Super Bowl, and they said, yes, Budweiser is celebrating immigrants coming to America, and they're standing against the travel ban. 
And others said, no, how dare Budweiser stick its nose where it doesn't belong? We should boycott Budweiser. And so Budweiser released a statement. Take a look at this. We believe beer should be bipartisan <laughs> and did not set out to create a political commentary. How many of you agree beer should be bipartisan? <laughs> With that in mind, we have a special gift for all of you here, 21 and over this morning. I'm just kidding. We don't have the budget for that. But that would be great, right? Beer church? Um, I love that. Beer should be bipartisan. However, however, can I tell you what the New Yorker wrote a few days later? Despite what Budweiser wants us to believe, beer is not bipartisan. Right now, nothing is. The nation's mood demands that lines be drawn and that everyone from average citizens to celebrities to mostly faceless, faceless multinational conglomerates make a choice, announce where they stand and what they believe. Ugh. And this is why we can't have nice things. Now, I wish that I could tell you that as Jesus followers, we, we are part of a group of people around the world who have stayed above the fray. And yet, even Christians find ways to get in, into fights with people over little things. Um, does everybody here know about the war on Christmas we're supposed to be outraged about? Starbucks has moved to a secular, non-faith-based cup. You better get angry. Your cashier at Target might offend you by saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. You better ban Target this year or, or, or pretend to ban it because we all know that when you need diapers at 9.55 p.m. and it's the only thing open, you're still sneaking into Target. Okay, it, it would seem to me that we live in a time and in a country right now where everyone, every group, every party feels a need to stand for something and against something else and Christians are no exception, and it is easy to see why. We read the words of Jesus a, a few weeks ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, we read something like that, and we think, yes, Christians are called to stand for righteousness. We're, we're supposed to notice what's wrong in this world and demand that it be made right. And so what we often do is what everyone does when they're angry and they want to stand for something and against something else. We gear up for battle we move into us versus them mode and, and we figure out who's on our side and we arm ourselves with some really strong arguments and we set out to get into some fights or, or or if we don't set out to start them we at the very least we get ready for blows when the fight comes our way and boy does it ever you have a passive aggressive argument with some people you work with or you get into a really sharp, sticky debate with some of your friends, or you have it out with a family member that you disagree with. And, and, and oh, if only we were all as healthy as Rex and Katie and Jake, who we saw up here earlier. But a lot of times we're not. Oh, you are. You, you're great. It's the other person who's not. And what started out as a, as a peaceful Thanksgiving afternoon watching football turns into a very tense, no one is talking anymore, Thanksgiving dinner. And I want you to know today, Jesus tells us, this is a forgery. Now, righteousness isn't a forgery. Having strong feelings or beliefs is not a forgery. But thinking that you are supposed to be battling the people around you in Jesus' name, that is a forgery. Let me say that again. We have fallen for the battle forgery. And we have fallen for it because we have applied the world's understanding of what it is to, to stand for something or against something. We've applied that 
to Jesus' call for us to be people who want to see wrongs made right. And we think we're supposed to battle people with our words and our attitudes and politically. Doesn't the Bible even suggest there's some fights we're supposed to be a part of? And it does. But you know what it says about that fight? That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Whatever has given you a righteous anger, your battle is not against people. That is a forgery. And the problem with that forgery is it's led to broken relationships, right? Where family members aren't speaking with each other, or, or, or if they are, they keep it real surfacy. And friends are afraid to be honest about what they feel, and or you can't figure out uh, whether your friend or why your daughter or, or, or whomever won't come to church with you anymore. And what you don't realize is because you've been battling them on something and your faith is the thing you based your battle on, they don't want to have anything to do with your faith because it made them feel like an enemy. The battle forgery has done real damage. The idea that if you're going to follow Jesus and obey God, it means that you're going to fight people who you think are on the wrong side of righteousness. So, let me show you the original thing that God had in mind. Instead of a battle against your neighbors or your friends or your family, let me give you the original thing instead. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Keeps going. Jesus said, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, let, let me read that first line again. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers has somehow been replaced with soldiers, with fighters. And I want to show you this morning what Jesus really meant when he said this. In fact, as we go through what he really meant, I want to ask you to ask yourself a question. Are you a peacemaker or an instigator? Are you somebody who's all about making peace or are you about stirring the, we'll keep it PG, stirring the conflict? When, when you see lines start being drawn, are you picking sides? Are you getting out your armor and your weapons and rallying the troops? Or are you a peacemaker? To understand what Jesus meant by peacemaker, there's actually a really important historic thing that was happening in Jesus' day that you should know about. Uh, something called the Pax Romana. Would you say that with me? We'll all just say it together. One, two, three. Pax Romana. Pax meant peace. Uh, Romana meant Roman. It was a time that has been called the Roman peace. The Roman Empire had taken over Jesus' world in, in much of Europe and, and down into the Mideast and parts of Africa. And from about 25 years before Christ, for another 175 years, the Pax Romana was this period of peace and stability throughout the empire. There was law, there was order, there was law and order. <laughs> and whereas before this period, there, 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 there were a lot of riots and rebellions and there was insurrection. Once Augustus became emperor, all of that stuff slowed down. And now you might ask, well, how did Augustus create peace throughout this world? And, and you ready? He got rid of democracy. He called all the shots, so there's nobody to argue with him. He made himself a god that should be worshipped by everybody. And he conquered the surrounding kingdoms and didn't leave anyone big enough to fight him. 
If you were Roman, it was great. If you were a surrounding kingdom that eventually got raided and fought and conquered, you might not have called this the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. When they conquered your land, you might have called it the Roman violence. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. There's, there's something in that right there for us. When you are around like-minded people who all think the way you do about whatever issue it is that you're taking a stand on, they are at the center of your belief system. Guess what? It feels like, seems like, you are in peace. And the others outside of your circle are the ones who are the instigators. They're the ones who are causing all the problems. How do I know? Because I'm around people who all agree with me. We're not fighting, and so you feel peace. But guess what? It is possible for you to feel peace when your surrounding world is really at war. It's just worth knowing today that if you see an angry world around you and you don't get it or, or you get some things but not, not on other things, just know there is not peace for everyone just because there's peace for you. But this is where Jesus' words come in. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's keep going. Jesus says this line about peacemakers as he is standing in the Roman Empire teaching in the middle of the Pax Romana that is anything but peaceful to his fellow Jews that are standing listening. Now, I told you about Jewish priests a few weeks ago and, and how they had become tools of, of Rome to control the people. They felt peace. But there were other groups, the zealots, who wanted to overthrow Rome. And, and the Pharisees who saw the priests as sellouts and the average person who'd been taxed by the Romans way beyond their means, and they were all angry. They were in a battle. They were in battle mode. Jesus had walked into a powder keg, or I should say he was born into one. It was an anger incubator, like the one that we see today. And that is important background for you to know that Jesus says to that group, in that kind of environment, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, what is a peacemaker? If you were to look at the Greek that is written here in this verse, are you ready for, for what peacemaker really means? This is going to blow your mind. It is quite literally someone who makes peace. I know, that's not that impressive, is it? Sometimes it, it just is what it is. Someone who makes peace where they see conflict. This past winter, uh, a family in Orange County, California here, they were inside their house trying to celebrate the Lunar New Year. Uh, this was a Chinese family, and, and they had lived in their upscale neighborhood in Orange County for a few months, and, and they were excited to celebrate together, and everything was going fine until they started hearing a pounding on the front door of their home. And they, and they went to the door, and, and, and no one would be there, but when they'd open that door, they'd hear racial slurs shouted at them from people hiding out in the cover of dark. And then the same people would start hurling rocks at their house. Okay, this had actually been going on for five months since they first moved into this neighborhood in the middle of the, the COVID pandemic. Teenagers would punch the door and their windows, and, and they would ring the bell at random times of the day and all throughout the night. And they had called the sheriff's department, and, and the police had opened an investigation, but the harassment kept happening. Okay, the homeowner, Hi John C., he installed the camera and, and a fence, but it didn't stop. The harassment continued. The small children in this family were terrified somebody was going to hurt them. Eventually, afraid to go into their rooms anymore, they ended up sleeping in their room uh, with mom and dad for five months. It, it was at this point, Hi John C. decided to reach out to a neighbor for support. 
He called Layla Parks, who lives down the street and had always been kind to his family. And, and his neighbor came up with a plan to help protect the C family. In a neighborhood Facebook group, she posted video footage of a recent attack. She asked if anyone would be willing to stand guard outside the family's home at night. And, and she said this on the Facebook page. She said, here's our, our primary mission for this family to have some peace again. You guys, the sign-up sheet was immediately flooded with memes. Neighbors were horrified by the teenager's actions, and they were eager to help. Uh, at the time that I, I read the article that was written, 50 people had volunteered to do at least one shift. It had been two weeks when I read it. Neighbors had stood guard outside their home every night for two weeks. A peacemaker is someone who brings peace, who organizes peace when there is chaos and conflict and some of what jesus is talking about here is surely something like that and, and i would just stop for a second and i would ask you to what extent do you do this when you see what's happening in the lives of people around you to what extent do you say i think that i can bring some peace to this situation i think that i can organize some peace have you ever noticed a conflict and said, I think that I have something to offer that could change this? Now, I got to tell you, there's more to peacemaking than this, sticking up for the person who's been wronged. If you leave today thinking a peacemaker is just somebody who defends or protects somebody uh, who, who's being wronged, I'll have led you astray. Because this word peacemaker, it also means reconciler. Somebody who reconciles two people, two groups. You and I are supposed to be reconciling people to God and, of course, reconciling people to each other. Not, not just stand in the way of harm coming to someone. That's good. But to bring two groups or two people together who are in conflict. And, and I wonder if maybe we haven't quite realized that peacemaker means that. Jim Walton was a Bible translator for many years to a tribe of people in the jungles of Colombia. And he was having the hardest time translating, as a Bible translator, he was having the hardest time translating to this remote tribe the simple word peace. Well, one day, uh, Fernando, the village chief, was, was promised by somebody a 20-minute plane ride to a location that would have taken him three days to travel by walking. But the plane was delayed in arriving near the village, so Fernando decided just to head out on foot on this three-day journey. Well, when the plane finally came, a runner took off to bring Fernando back. But by the time he had returned back, the plane had left again. Okay, you can imagine Fernando was so angry because of this mix-up. And he went to Jim, the translator, and, and, and he launched into an angry tirade. And Jim decided to tape record the chief's diatribe. He was recording everything because it helped him translate the language with the Bible. So he sat down to translate this angry rant, and he discovered that the chief kept repeating this phrase, I don't have one heart. And so Jim asked the other villagers what that meant, one heart. And, 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 and what he found, it was like saying, there is nothing between you and the other person. So when Fernando was saying, I don't have one heart, he was saying, there is something that divides us, that is between us. One heart when nothing is dividing us anymore. And that was what Jim needed to translate the word peace. Think about that for a second. When you have peace with God, it means there is nothing, no sin, no guilt, no condemnation that separates you from God. 
and the love of God. We are at one heart with God. Okay, guess what? If that's you, you are qualified and sent out as God's peacemaker. You are to be reconciling people to each other rather than instigating, rather than stirring the conflict, rather than joining their battles that no one ever wins. Now, people have been hearing these words of Jesus for 2,000 years. Blessed are the peacemakers. And often, I'll be honest, I think we get them a little bit wrong. Let me tell you what a peacemaker is not. A peacemaker is not a peacekeeper. A few years ago, a woman named Jen Glantz started a business for $2,000. You could hire her to be a bridesmaid at your wedding. She does over 20 weddings a year, you guys. Uh, she's not a wedding planner. She's a friend for the day. And she specializes in energizing the dance floor, comforting a nervous bride, but maybe most importantly, keeping an eye on problem relatives and keeping the peace between them. Uh, this has actually gone so well, she's built a team of bridesmaids around the country. Uh, they usually use a fake name and a fake backstory, and, and they claim to be a friend of the bride from some obscure hobby she had. And, 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 and I'll tell you, Jen is hiring right now, but she does not hire people who love to party. She hires people who can keep the peace, which makes the job an emotional roller coaster, right? Okay, peacekeepers are not what Jesus is talking about. Somebody who makes sure that quarreling friends and neighbors and family don't kill each other or disturb the peace, and then they leave. And the quarrel continues as soon as they're gone. No, what, what Jesus calls us to, reconciling people to each other. Much harder job being a peacemaker. Another thing that peacemakers are not, peace lovers. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I hope that we all love peace, but, but there is such a thing as loving peace so much that you avoid any conflict. Instead of dealing with issues, we evade them, we pretend they're not there, and we are afraid of trouble. And, and, and I'll tell you, some of us have fallen for a whole new forgery that peacemaking is really peace-loving, so we don't step into conflict or we don't stand up when something is wrong. I just, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Okay, it is not a coincidence that the line Jesus says right after this peacemaker's one is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus knew, uh, knew that what comes with hungering and thirsting for righteousness is conflict. And he says right here, don't avoid conflict. Step into it. But you're not to stir it up. You are not to, to instigate. You are to reconcile people to each other. There, there's such a thing as loving peace or avoiding conflict so much, you actually cause more trouble. You know that? And less peace. Loving peace can actually just make you more of an instigator than a reconciler. Peacemakers wade into conflict, and they bring people together. So, in addition to asking, are you a peacemaker or an instigator? Let me ask you, are you a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? Are you a peacemaker or a peace lover? What conflict in our anger-incubated world or, or your anger-incubated workplace or your anger-incubated family, what conflict is God calling you to step into and bring, organize, make peace? Earlier this year, um, rumors started circulating that Matthew McConaughey might be considering a run for the governor of Texas in 2022. Have you heard this? 
and maybe even a higher office than that. And uh, a journalist cornered him and asked him, is there any truth to this that you might run for governor next year? And, and he resisted saying whether or not it was true uh, or whether or not he was considering it. But when they asked him, what would be your campaign slogan? Uh, he said that his favorite suggestion so far had been, make America all right, all right, all right again. <laughs> and, and, and then he paused and he said, actually, for me, my slogan would be, meet me in the middle. I dare you. And, and he then explained, and I can't believe I'm going to give you a long Matthew McConaughey quote, but it's really good. He said, when facing any crisis, I found that a good plan is to first recognize the problem, then stabilize the situation, organize the response, then respond. You can't have unity without confrontation. And to have confrontation you have to at least validate the other person's position. We don't even do that, he said. So, so I would say, I'll meet you in the middle, I dare you. It's a challenge, a radical move. You come this way, I'll come your way. That's how democracy works. I don't know if I'd vote for him, but pretty wise. In other words, to make peace with someone in conflict, whether that conflict is with you or two other people or groups that you're trying to reconcile, you have got to be willing to listen. You must understand where they're coming from. Why do they make the choices they do? You must meet them in the middle. Okay, lucky for us, we don't live in Texas. We don't have to decide if we'd vote for Matthew McConaughey, but there is some real wisdom there. In, in Crosswinds, I will just say, I don't know who's going to reconcile this angry world in this angry country, if not for the people of Jesus. And I don't know who's going to reconcile your coworkers and your friends and your family, if not you. Because our world is in battle mode. But fortunately for us, we follow a leader who is known as the Prince of Peace, who himself is peace, who has broken down every wall of hostility, Scripture says. And you can do this because you as the church are the hands and feet of the ultimate peacemaker. All right, will you stand with me? Let, let's, let's pray together. God, we want to do right by you. Heavenly Father, we, we want to do as you ask and, and as you've told us here. So would you convict us when we would start gearing up to fight others, when, when we become instigators? Would you help us see how we might be making things worse, not better? And, and would you, with your Holy Spirit, make us people of peace, not just keepers of peace, God, not just lovers of peace, but reconcilers, people who have the ability to see conflict and bring your peace to those who might not yet know you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, we'll see you next week. Not a single one sounds right. And I can't face tomorrow. A